listening to Generation Executive, a podcast focused on leadership, careers, and business with executives and leaders from Generation X. Welcome to the Generation Executive Podcast, where we explore the unique perspectives and insights of today's executives and leaders from Generation X. I am your host, Andrea Bricka, and together we will learn how my guests navigated the workplace during their careers and the thoughts they have about today's business world. Generation X is often overlooked in the slot between large populations of baby boomers and millennials in the workplace, and now Gen Z is a hot topic as they enter the workforce. On this show, we will hear from those generally born from 1965 to 1980 who are considered part of Generation X and are now leaders in their industries. Join us as we explore what is unique and similar with this generation's career path and discover how these leaders continue to make an impact and shape the future of business. Whether you're a fellow Gen Xer, a leader looking to understand and connect with this generation, or simply curious about the leaders who came of age in the 80s and 90s, this podcast is for you. Joining me for this episode is Rachel Lorenega. Rachel is Acting General Counsel and Corporate Secretary at medical device startup Genolite. Rachel, welcome to the Generation Executive Podcast, and thank you for joining me on this episode. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you for having me. So could you just please start by telling us about your career background and your career to this point? Sure. Well, let me um, let me just tell you a little bit about myself and uh, please feel free to jump in with any questions. Um, some of it might be <laughs> kind of funny. <clears throat> some might be a little bit more thought provoking. So I, I live in Silicon Valley and I was actually born here. I'm a second generation, sorry, pardon that third generation San Franciscan. So I, my family immigrated here from Italy and I was born in a large Italian uh, family. My, my great grandfather started a large construction company in South San Francisco and it was a family business, true to, true to, true to the stereotype Italian contractor contracting business. And so my, I was the first in my, uh, my mom did go to college. She went to San Francisco state and she became a nurse. And then uh, my dad worked for the contracting business. And so for me deciding on my career path, um, I just, I just really wanted to be what I thought was, um, you know, a very thought provoking profession. I thought I'd be a doctor. And so I was thinking immediately, you know, biochemistry would be a really good major for me. Well, in um, it's, it's interesting because in my family's culture, it's just very important to have to be very hardworking. And so with my dad, my dad's parents were, you know, um, they were, they were first generation Italian Americans uh, who also lived through the depression. And my grandfather was in world war II. And so they just had a very strict outlook on life. You work hard, you save, um, and you you get a job as, as soon as you can. And so that was really instilled in, in my father growing up. And I always saw my dad working on the weekends, in the evenings, just working really hard to support his family. And so when we were in high school, my sisters and I all we all got jobs. And so I started working at the tender age of 15 at a, at a family friend's deli, Italian delicatessen. 
And so I started working since I was 15 years old, you know, washing dishes, mopping floors, baking bread, learning how to use one of those old fashioned scales where you would have to put lead weight onto a scale to measure out the pounds of flour when you're making bread. Um, And so, you know, it it actually really stirred my interest in cooking and baking, um, which is very, uh, from a very early age. So when I was growing up, it was always told to me that I was going to be going to a junior college first because that's what my mom did. And it was a great way to save money. And I always, I, it, I, I always fought with my parents on that because I really wanted to go to way to school. I really wanted to experience college life right from the you know, ripe age of 18. But it was something that they, they wanted us to stay local. They wanted us to go to junior college first. Um, and that way we could work when we were in school. So I did two years of junior college. And looking back, it was such a great decision for my parents because it really made us focus, my sisters and I, focus on what we actually wanted to do with our career. And so I really wanted to um, be a doctor, like I said at first. And when I was there and I took a couple, I think I was biochemistry or I took organic chemistry, I was quickly, this is not for me. I do not like this. I don't enjoy this at all. But I took a sociology class and I absolutely loved it. And I got to learn about the interactions of people and, and, and political organizations. And I just was so fascinated with that. And I said, you know what, this would be fun to be, to be an attorney. And I thought that that would be the, the best thing to do with, with, my, with my career at that point. And so immediately, because I didn't really have any fa- attorneys in my family, I thought, oh, I'll be a district attorney because my only experience had been watching criminal criminal courts play out on, you know, television, like the OJ Simpson trial. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll be a district attorney. Well, when I went away to, for two years to UC Davis, they offered a, a program with the San Francisco district attorney's office. And so I did that when I was, I think, 20 years old, 20 or 21 years old. And I quickly learned that, no, this isn't for me at all. So, but I did study for my LSAT and I went to law school. I went to UC, University of California, San Francisco. Uh, it was called Hastings at the time, but it has been changed its name. Um, and I, I went to school, went to school there. And I quickly learned that everybody at that school that was there was on, um, was, were, were very, very smart. They were from, they were the smartest kids from all across the country, from UC Berkeley, UC Davis, UCLA. And I just was, I was getting imposter syndrome just from the start there because I thought, oh my gosh, I only went to two years of college. This isn't really, these are, these kids have all, or these kids, these, these adults have all gone to school for four years. Some of them at, you know, very pristine East coast schools. I'm, I'm a working class gal. This isn't, this isn't the place for me. And I just, I remember these, these, thoughts in my mind. And I was like, you know what, the one thing I know how to do really, really hard well is to work really hard. And so I remember just going to school because I was living with my parents, again, saving money, <laughs> living with my parents, taking taking BART to, uh, to school early in the morning, getting there and just starting to study almost immediately when I was a, when I was a 1L. And just saying, you know what, the one thing I know I can do probably better than most of these kids here is to work really, really hard. And so I started studying just and creating these crazy outlines from the start and ended, and ended up doing pretty well in law school. 
I graduated, I think ma uh, magnum cum laude. So, you know, pretty, pretty high in my class, did law review um, and landed a federal clerkship. So I was a, a clerk for a, a judge, uh, Judge McManus in the Eastern District of California Bankruptcy Court. And I took the bar exam when I was clerking for Judge McManus. I had accepted a position at a Texas, a Texas law firm. And I, so I had to be admitted in Texas. So I studied for the bar exam while I was clerking for the judge. And that was crazy because I would have to work full time as his only law clerk, come home and then study for the bar exam and then wake up at I think it was four o'clock in the morning to study before work. And once I passed that bar exam, my mom said, well, why don't you take the California bar exam in case you decide to move back home? Or, and I said, oh, come on, mom. It's, she's like, how easy, how different could it be? Well, let me tell you, <laughs> the Texas state bar and the California state bar are entirely different. But I took the California state bar, um, also passed that the first time. And I, I did the same thing. I, I studied for both of those exams and I was like, you know what? I know how to work hard. And that's the one, the one thing up I have on this process. So, but looking back, I, I just can't believe I, I put myself in the, that situation. Um, for, that was a lot of pressure on my brain. So you, you took them back to back, like the same bar back exam to back, time? Within six, okay. within six months of each other while working full time. <laughs> and for the California one, I didn't even take a bar course. I purchased somebody's books, used books. This was in a 2003. So there wasn't, you know, Facebook marketplace. I bought somebody's used books off of Craigslist and I studied those and I passed it. Uh, and I, I mean, it was, I was lucky that I knew the answers that were asked on the, on the paragraphs, <laughs> the paragraph long, long answer questions because I could have easily not passed it, but I, but I was able to. Um, and when I, when I moved to Texas and I took, and I started working at a big law firm, you know, that was right during uh, the fall of one of the largest oil companies, Enron. And I, the law firm I worked for was representing one of the um, major executives at that company former executive at that company. And so I did work on that case and it was, um, you know, you, you are working on, I, I mean, I wasn't, I was doing, I think document review, but when you work on a case like that, you really do start to think of, um, you know, is this really what I want to do? Want to do? Am I really representing, you know, the family values I grew up in? Um, and, and, to, for me, I, I wasn't. And so I would counterbalance that with doing a lot of volunteering. And I would volunteer at the South Dallas Legal Clinic. I represented single mothers. I represented um, tenants getting their deposits back from slumlords. I remember, you know, writing these demand letters to a person in, in Dallas, a, a company in Dallas. A company? I can't remember if it was a holding company. It mustn't have been. It must have been an individual. But the person showed up at my law office to return the the deposit with five hundred dollars of quarters, nickels, and dimes. And so we we had to count those out to to give her a receipt for the the return of the deposit. So that was a that was an interesting um, story. Something I didn't really expect to do in my legal career. 
And I also did represented the Texas SPCA. And that was really, so I, I got a lot of, you know, soul fulfillment doing that type of work. So when I moved back to San Francisco, I worked for a large law firm, very large law firm uh, in San Francisco. And I would, same, same feeling, you would represent clients that you necessarily weren't uh, fully morally aligned with, I'll say that. And I would do the same thing. I did a lot of pro bono work when I when I worked at that large law firm. And the firm, the firms generally support that effort because you're getting good you're getting good legal experience and you're doing something very beneficial for the community. So I I enjoyed that. And then I started doing more um, boutique law practice. And then and then I became a mother when my husband and I decided to have children. I thought I was going to stay at home at work stay at home from work. Um, and that clearly was not for me. I, I love being a mother, but I needed to, I needed to work. I just did not feel, I did not feel that I personally was fulfilled staying at home. It's for some, some parents, but it was not for me. So, um, but at, when I decided to go back to work, I really was thinking, what is it that I really want to do? And I just did a lot of soul searching because, you know, here I had given life to a child and I was thinking this was a situation where I could, you know, maybe change my path and not go back to a, a firm and not do big law. And I thought that I would join um, a startup that would be, um, that I could feel morally aligned with. And so I did, I joined a company that was starting off as a, um, it was an electric vehicle infrastructure company, and this was in 2014 uh, when my my oldest daughter was she was like one years old when I joined, and there were only like three electric vehicles on the um, commercial market at that point. So obviously, commercial vehicle uh, electric vehicles have grown immensely. The the desire and the need for them have grown immensely. And so that company grew and I grew, my career grew with it. And when I left that company and was looking for opportunities, I, same idea, I, there were, in 2021, when I was looking, there were many different opportunities that were available. It's a completely different legal market now. And there were, you know, lots of different options because I had, you know, had done, had done pretty well in my legal career to that point. And the market was hot. But I just, again, wanted to feel more morally. I had this sense, this urge to do something that I felt very, um, that I felt very compelled to to do. Something that I where that I really where I really felt morally aligned with the company. And so I joined Genelite, where it's a medical diagnostic company, on point, point of care, uh, laboratory results, and the idea is that most people won't get their labs or at least there's a there's studies have shown that I think it's like 30% of people when they have labs ordered and I'm guilty of this too I don't think I've had my labs done for quite some time when they have their labs ordered by their primary physician they have to go to a, a separate clinic to get their blood drawn and and then the blood is taken to a, a centralized laboratory and then they get their their uh, diagnostics or the results within three days the idea with this company is that you'll be able to get, you know, 90% of your tests done at the time of within 20 or 30 minutes of the time of draw. And so you are able to get, you know, immediate results that will 
uh, allow a physician, your primary physician to give your diagnostics and, and your and your care, care summary immediately. And so if there's some necessary changes that would need to happen because of your di- of your diagnosis, that could be done. And so I immediately thought when I was interviewing with this company, I thought of my grandmother. My grandmother at the time, she's passed away now, but at the time my grandmother was living in an assisted living facility. And anytime she needed to go get her labs done or go to her primary doctor, my mom would have to drive to the uh, facility where she lived, pick her up, drive her to her primary care physician, drive her to get her blood drawn, drive her back home. They would wait for three days and then they'd have to drive back to the, to the, to her doctor. And I just thought this, this, this is a type of company that could change, change and be beneficial for a lot of humans. And that was the type of company I wanted to join. And, and now that, um, yes, so that's, that's my legal career up until, that was a quick way to explain 20 years, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. 20, 20 years in June. (laughs) Well, and you, you mentioned, um, you know, obviously the reasons that you were looking for kind of more mission-driven things. Can you talk a little bit about your desire to work for a more mission-focused organization, something that aligned for you? And do you think Gen X focused more on company missions than, say, generations before it? Sure. Um, for me, again, I... I I look at where I, like basically what I, where I was when I became an attorney, I was, I was very young. I went right, right from college to law school. And so I was admitted to the bar, I believe when I was 24 years old. So I was very, very young. And for me, I just felt so fortunate and I felt so lucky with all these opportunities that, that, I mean, I had worked really, really hard. Um, you know, I literally worked, had a job my entire time I was in college and in high school, but I, you know, I just felt that it was, you know, I wanted to to really give, give back because I felt like I had gotten, I had just gotten so much from, um, I guess society, I want to say. I also want to say though, that for me, it really, a lot of it came from my family and, a lot of Gen Xers, I know a lot of our parents are, um, well, they're baby boomers, but a lot of our grandparents came up during the depression. So I always remember hearing, you're so lucky, you have so much, we're so grateful for everything we have. And so, I mean, it could have been that because I I was from like a, a you know, a relatively newer immigrant family. Um, but then you know, when I, I've been reading a lot about the generation and there's a lot of altruistic ideas that the generation has. And I do feel that, you know, when we were growing up, I saw so many pivotal changes. I mean, my parents were not, you know, international relations majors at all. My parents, my mom went to nursing school. My dad was a contractor, but we would always watch the news. And I do remember seeing the Berlin whip, uh, Wallfall and how historic that was, and end of the Cold War, and learning about um, all of these very pivotal points of history that happened during my lifetime, um, and and I so I do think that like seeing the world change so much 
during that time, especially during the formative years, because I'm on the tail end of the generation X. I was born in 1978. So I do think that seeing all of that, that happened also like the AIDS epidemic happening and seeing all this like change and this worldly change around, around us that during the formative years of my life really made a difference. And so for me, I think from an early point in my career, like when I was 24 and 25, that's why I wanted to really give back when I was, when I was um, wanting, wanting to do pro bono work. And then, and then it really hit a, a mission peak with me when I became a mom, because I had given life to two, two children, two little girls. And I, really wanted to make the world a better place for them. And because I've always wanted to give back, but that really, it really changed once it really hit its, 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 its peak when I, when I became a mother. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced early in your career? I think for me, one of the biggest challenges I felt earlier in my career is, like I said, I was, I was a relatively new, um, younger attorney. So I was 24 years old and I was a 24 year old law clerk. So I do remember having to call counsel, schedule conferences, schedule meetings, and then just not just, just be basically not being taken seriously because of, of my, or what I, and I, you know, now that I'm 45, I really, (laughs) I really wish I could say, but I look so young. Um, but I did. I looked. I looked very, very young, and I was young. And I think some some people, especially when you're such a new legal um, in your legal legal career, I don't know if they want some some brow lines or if they want some some silver hair around your temples. But I just I did feel that there was a level of maybe just not being taken seriously at that age. Um, and same when I was at a big, big law firm, because I remember just people just assuming I was my, the partner I was working for, but it was his assistant. And I remember leaving um, my large law firm, you know, I was working on a huge case and I'd be leaving at 9.30 at night and the uh, security guard calling me over and saying, you know, I just have a question for you. And I was like, what, why aren't, why, when you leave here, are you not smiling? And I was just, I just, I thinking back then, I just, I don't think that person would say that to me now because I, I, I'm older, but I just think that, you know, I just would, I just, just the surprise. I just think it's, for me, it was the surprise of, of how, unseriously I was taken but at the same time I might have been taken unseriously but I used that to my advantage and I would catch people off guard at court or on calls because if they don't expect much from me then when I come out they're gonna they're gonna realize their mistake so how how did you navigate the cultural and the technological changes in the workplace throughout your career so you talk about being a young lawyer but Culturally and technologically, a lot has changed, you know, to this point in your career. How have you navigated through that? That's such an interesting question. Um, you know, it's, and I don't know if it's, because I, I work in tech, right? So tech, the culture in tech is 
very much different than it was than it is in a large law firm. For a cult on cultural on the cultural side, I'll talk about dress. Everybody will wear jeans and and fan shoes and very be very casual. For me, when I started my career, I was going to to work in suits every single day. Every single day I wore a suit. And I there was one judge in Dallas who for women wouldn't even let women her clerk would call it was a, a female judge her clerk would call before your appearance and say that a skirt suit was required so i started so so for me the largest cultural change just from an optic standpoint has been just how informal the dress has become i mean not i love dressing informally but i also like dressing up because i feel like it gives me a, a it always as when i was younger absolutely it gave me a, a bigger sense of um i would feel more present and i feel like i had more um uh would have more um say in in a matter and be taken more seriously so i always dressed it always dressed very very formally and um so that's just one one cultural change that's really happened for me the technological changes are a little bit more difficult because i think our our generation is we're tech savvy but we're not tech tech dependent because we grew up where there were just the sometimes my grandparents still had a television that had antennas with that Sometimes the airplanes would make the the picture a little fuzzy, and so we would we would rearrange the antennas to get a better to get a better signal. And it was a big deal when my family got a VHS VHS recorder. Um, and I remember call waiting in an answering machine being a big deal. So uh, so for for me, like you know, nobody could have imagined what having an iPhone or doing everything or Jira or all the wonderful capable tools that we have. But for me, I think that the technological changes, I try to embrace them because they're designed to the software that's designed, especially in the legal field, that's designed to make everything a lot uh, more fluid, a lot easier, a lot easier to track. So it's not so, so uh, manual. And I think that's, you know, I, I, as long as I can learn how to use it, and I'm, I'm a firm believer that let me do, don't let, don't show me, let me do it. I forget what the actual saying is, but if I can get my hands on something and somebody can show me how to do it, and then I can do it myself, teach, teach me to fish. I think that's the saying. I'm going to teach you to fish instead of show, giving you a fish. And so I learn that way. And so I try, I very much try to embrace technology that way. I worked for a partner who couldn't even who couldn't even use a keyboard. Um, he would, if he had to send an email, a long email, he would dictate something and give it to his assistant who would then type it up in Word and he would attach the Word document to his emails. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, that is not what I want to become, especially with all the developments that are happening in, um, in with AI and everything. I'm like, you know what? If it's happening, I don't want to be that partner who's attaching a Word document to an email because he doesn't know how to use his keyboard. Yeah. And that was not that long ago. It was in 
you know, 2005 that that person could not use a, t- a keyboard. So I don't want to be that that partner. I want to be the the <laughs> I want to be the 45 year old um, executive who embraces technology and uses it because it's here and it's not going to go away. It's it's not going to go away. And when you think about the generation that came before you, how do you think that y- your career and leadership style? is different or the same from the generational leaders that came before you, those partners that were attaching word documents to emails because they couldn't type the email itself. How, but how do you think that your, your style is different from, from that generation? So I don't know, to be honest with you, I think that for me, you know, it's, it's, I look at the look at the generational differences, and and I mean this is one of the reasons why I loved being a, a sociology major because it really just it really just makes you you think. I I know from from gener like the Generation X we're also called I think it's the Latchkey Kids, and we're and we're called um, the Oregon Trail Children, um, and I don't know if if you remember, but Oregon Trail was, a, it was a game. Yeah, yeah, it, was a, it was a computer game that you were, if your school was lucky enough to have computers, you would play this computer game during your your computer class. And that's how you learned, you know, command functions. I think it was like control. You would use the little arrow buttons to move to move down the Oregon Trail and to purchase your oxen and your your flower to, to start making your, your trek to Oregon. And um, I don't know where I was. And so, and so because we, and we also, I think we, you know, we were also the ones who, and I was the oldest, that were in charge of, you know, taking care of the siblings and coming home by themselves and being just being really um, independent. And I think that independence and that just probably the independence from a long, from um, an early age really taught us that, you know, I, I, I think we're not micromanagers. I think Generation X, um, we're more altruistic. We're not micromanagers. We put, I think we're also called the, um, the first generation of work-life balance where mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the baby boomers and the depression kids, or I don't know what that generation was called, but the, I, I think of my like grand my grandmother's generation. They like were the just the workhorses. They work they work themselves. They they work to live, and we're the generation that um, that uh, sorry they live to work, and we're the generation that works to live because we value our family more. We were we were taught independence, so we don't really um, we don't uh, overwork, which for me personally given my family upbringing and and who i am i i i wish i could say i have a really good life work-life balance but i definitely am one of those people that have to make an extreme effort to push myself away from work but i do think as a generation the leadership that we have is that we don't micromanage where we we do put family uh family work-life balance um in a different in a different way than than other generations and that we were just really taught independence um, from a much younger age than than the generation after us i mean i'll i'll let you know i didn't go to any summer <laughs> summer camps as a kid during summer 
summers were outside playing with the neighborhood kids, riding bikes, catching snakes, doing things now that, you know, I, I would probably be horrified if my kids went in my backyard and caught, caught a snake. But, you know, I, I spent a good, a couple of weekends, my husband and I did going over spreadsheets of which summer camps our children were going to go to. And I, I don't think I went to a single one as a kid. So it, in fact, I know I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I'm not, I'm talking about, I did not have like an art camp from eight o'clock to one, 1 PM during the day. And I made sure my children had something planned almost every single day of their summer days. So very, very different situation. So you brought it up, the work-life balance and how difficult that is for you. How do you balance your personal life with your professional responsibilities? I honestly, Andrea, force myself to. It's one of those things where um, my kids are at the age where they're they're eight and 10. And this is one of the only, um, this is, I, 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 I'm just so fearful (laughs) that I have have two girls. I'm so fearful of, of teenage life in in the near future, just because I have some friends who have teenage daughters that I'm just really embracing it and saying, okay, I have a couple more years before the older one may, may or may not hate me. So I want to make sure that I, um, I, I'm her best friend during this time. And so I also just, you know, there's just so many, so much fun things to do with kids these days. And my children are, are interested in things that, that I, that I was interested or that I would have been interested in, in, in as a child, if I knew they really existed. And so I'm sort of using this time to almost like relive my own childhood to be like, Oh, you know, what would be really cool is if we went to the library and we learned about this really cool place and then we went to go visit it. And, and we, um, like we did that for Costa Rica. I, I just, we're, we're a very outdoorsy family. We, I think we've been camping, I think six times this year. And so one of the things that we, we did is my husband and I talked to the girls about what, where would be really fun. And we gave them different options and they, they picked Costa Rica. And so we, we um, researched Costa Rica. We looked at like different areas to go visit and we went on an adventure vacation with them. And I thought that was, I thought that was really fun. And so what I do is I, we always prioritize family dinner time, which is also a, a, an Italian culture thing. Um, I love cooking. And so my my girls are starting to like to cook with me. So it's really fun to, to cook the family recipes. We have so many family recipes that um, we, we cook them together. We have these big Sunday night dinners. We try to sit down every night during the week. And I do remember that growing up. And that was such a such an important part of my family that we would sit down for family dinners. And I, and I know a lot of families, especially with different sports and different um, travel obligations and going back to the office, it's hard to do that. But for me, I want to make sure that I instill in my children that family time is very important, that we should not just do family time for the sake of doing family time, but we should, we, it should really be special. And we should really try to enjoy it. There's going to be the mundane parts of, of you know, working on homework or making sure we, we log our, our reading as a family. But I just, it's very, and, and it's enjoyable now. <laughs> Check back with me in a couple of years to see how, how the older one and I are getting along. But for right now, it's very, it's very fun. And I'm, I'm almost like reliving my childhood with them. 
So turning back to your career, what, what would you consider to be your biggest accomplishment as a leader and, and, and why do you consider that the biggest accomplishment? I think my biggest accomplishment was um, I was able to start two women's initiatives. So when I was at a large law firm in San Francisco, I was part of one of the women's um, women, women network and, and uh, women uh, leadership programs that they had. And I really enjoyed it. And when I went in tech, I mean, tech generally has just struggled with women in leadership positions and the development of women mentor programs and development of women's careers. And so I did start a women's initiative at two companies. And part of it is, yeah, I'll admit it, it's selfish. I'm a woman and I have two daughters. And I think it's very important for me to teach my children to be strong, strong women and to be strong um just also just strong advocates for themselves. But I also think it's just really important as a woman to, to give, to give back to other women. And I, one of the things about me is I am an outgoing person. I'm friendly. I, I don't mind public speaking because of my, my background as in, in litigation. And I do think that is a, a kind of a, a gift, I, a gift I bring to the table. And so I was happy to share, to start those women's initiatives. And at Genelite, I think that there was a lot of women who who um, were excited about that as well. And because I sat on I, I sit on the leadership team, it's something that they, um, you know, it's it's nice to have an advocate that you that you want um, that you feel like you can trust. And so that I think is the biggest accomplishment. I I do think that you know it's important for for women and for women for, for everybody executives everybody really to, to give back where they can and i do think that that's something I'm, I'm willing to give back on and also it's not it's not part of my professional career but i'm a but it's a very good organization i'm a troop leader for the girl scouts for my daughter's girl scout troop and so it's you know leading helping though it's a you know a girl-led program and helping youth girls come up with their own goals and their own um their own, their own ideas is, is something that's, that's very inspiring to, to see and to see unfold. Building on that, are there lessons you've learned from any failures or setbacks in your career that you do share with others to help them? Yeah, that's, you know, I, yes, I, I, there are a lot of lessons, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of lessons and, and it's very important, um, you know, part of when I was younger, part of it, and it was a definitely a family, a family thing where it's like, if you fail, you dust yourself up, you, 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 you get back and you get back on the saddle and you go right back to work. And looking now, I think it's really important if there's a setback in your career to really just take time to do a reassessment and to just think really where where it is that um, you succeeded, where it is that that you um, could work on, and just to do a lot more self-reflection and to be really kind with yourself. I know yesterday was like Mental Awareness Day, and so I saw a lot of postings um, on LinkedIn about that. Um, and I think it's very, very important for people to take care of their their mental health. I know I I know that a 
The bar exam results are going to be coming out soon um, in October and November. Uh, I was speaking to somebody who had just taken the bar exam and I told that person, congratulations, congratulations, no matter how it turns out, because you were able to take it. And that's the most important thing. Um, you know, it, it, this isn't about a legal career, but my daughter had her first fencing tournament uh, last Friday. My husband both and I took it off of work and we went there and her first two matches, you know, she's 10. Her first two matches, she lost 5-0. She didn't even get a single, a single hit. And we, and she was just crying and she was hysterical. And this is, <laughs> this is at the Santa Clara County Convention Center. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds of kids and nothing is more devastating than a child crying in front of other children. I mean, she was humiliated. So we took her, I, I took her and I just talked to her. I was like, look, and she's just like, I want to quit. I want to quit. I want to stop. I want to stop. I said, look, you're not going to stop. The most important thing you need to do is to think of uh, one of the happiest memories you have. Think of like, we have a dog. Think of when Dora was a puppy and the first day we brought her home. Think of, think of, think of that. Think of Christmas morning. Think of your birthday when you have a birthday party. Think of something. I just don't want you to quit. I want you, you, if you do this tournament and you absolutely hate fencing after that, you can quit, but you're not going to leave this tournament yet. Um, and so she's like, okay, I don't want to, but I will. And she started getting some hits, winning some of her matches. She was, you know, she was eliminated, but at the end of the day, she felt so strong. And I was, my husband and I were so proud of her that she was able to recover, that she was able to say, to say, you know what? I am, I agreed to do, to do this tournament. Um, I love the sport. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was because she always wins the matches she has at her, her fencing school, but she, it was a learning experience for her. And I really honestly think of what happened that day with this 10 year old at a fencing tournament is a way I'm going to embrace any other future setbacks I get. I'm going to just, you know, yes, I'm going to do some self-reflection. Yes, I lost this proposal. Yes, I got my budget slashed. Yes, I did this. But you know what? I'm going to keep on going. And if, it, and if I get past this one setback and I still want to quit, then maybe I'll make a reassessment. But I'm not going to let this one setback dictate what's going to happen in my future or my career. But speaking of the, speaking of the future, what kind of predictions do you have for the future of business and how are you preparing for them? So for the future in business, I just generally think that there's going to be a lot more use of AI. I think that that the regulations and the law are going to have to play catch up with AI, with AI though, because I think AI just came out swinging and a lot of countries, I know in Europe that they started having um, certain rules and regulations with AI a few years ago. I think that they're going to there's gonna be a lot of catch up because the, the, uh, the, the technology just developed so quickly, at least maybe, maybe I'm being ignorant when I say that to my, in, in my world, <laughs> when I, I, in my world, I'm just realizing for the last year, how prevalent AI is. And so I think that there's gonna be a lot more rules and regulations put in place. I think I, I just, see a lot more use of the AI in business happening. And I think everybody just needs to embrace it and use it. It's a great starting place. It's not going to necessarily replace 
the legal profession or a place in my job, and it's a great starting place. You can use AI to, to start an outline of a litigation brief or start an outline of a board presentation. It's not going to do the board presentation because some of it's not going to be correct, but you can use it. And I do think that a lot of the um, technology that we're having in the, in the legal space is going gonna, is gonna to benefit the management of, of contracts and management of legal workflow. And I just think that there's a lot of um, a lot of ways lawyers can use this technology to, to make their lives more efficient in the in the business, in the corporate side. So, and just to wrap things up, anything you'd like to share, kind of in ending this, um, about your thoughts on business, careers, work-life balance, gen- generation X in the workplace. Any 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 parting thoughts? My only parting thought really is that, you know, I, I think of this, I think of a story that one of my law professors said when we were um, in, in law school, he was a remedies professor. And he said, when you graduate from law school, you're going to get a pen from, you know, a great aunt or a cousin, and you're going to not really know what to do with this pen. My advice to you is to put this pen in a drawer and only use this pen to sign documents or sign things that you're truly proud of. Now, this is when we were lawyers and we're all going out to work for law firms. And so when you think of signing, you're signing your a complaint that you're filing or an answer to a complaint or interrogatories or something along those lines. And he said, I want you just to only use this pen when you are signing something you're truly proud of. And then when you realize that you're signing less and less of things that you're truly proud of, then you maybe need to think of, are you happy? Do you need to make a career switch? And I really do think that that's good advice because I I really, even though I didn't necessarily use the pen analogy when I made the the decision to go in-house, I do think that that was really one of the reasons. I just, I wanted, as a mom, I wanted to make sure I was leaving a very good mark on the world. And I do think that was a big factor for me going, um, leaving big law and going, going in-house. And I'm, I'm very proud of that decision. And I, and I do want to leave the world better for the next generation. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining Generation Executive and for sharing your story and insights today. I appreciate you taking part. Thank you so much for having me. Now for this episode's Generation X data point. Career site Zeti conducted a Generation X in the workplace study last year that found that 84% of Gen X surveyed would choose job satisfaction over job prestige. They also found that for a full 71% of Generation X, doing meaningful work was more important than earning a lot of money. And almost nine in 10 at 86% of Gen X workers surveyed claimed a sense of purpose was essential to their work life. Thanks for listening and please join me next time as we hear another story from the unique perspective of a Generation X leader and we shed light on the evolving landscape of business and the enduring values that shape success. We hope this conversation has provided valuable insights and inspiration for all generations. Thanks again for listening. I'm Andrea Bricka. Thank you.
Generation Executive Host Andrea Bricka is a managing partner with leading talent advisory firm DHR Global and has over 20 years of executive search experience. She can be reached at A-B-R-I-C-C-A at dhrglobal.com. The Generation Executive Podcast is produced by Will Bricka. Thank you.